The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Would you take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 28. Acts uh, chapter... I'm sorry, (laughs) not Acts 28, Acts 20 and verse 28. So while you're turning there, let me thank all of you. I got a number of inquiries and I know a number of prayers uh, this morning for my episode. Um, Got some medical uh, help and it looks like um, I quit using, I I have really bad allergies and there's one of our elders' wives gave me the cure, which was... um, which was uh, local honey. I highly recommend it. I mean, I remember when she came to me with it, I kind of joked about it. And I said, oh, yeah, local honey and a little bat dust and a ring of garlic or something. That'll do it. And uh, she said, no, it really works. And so I used it. And guess what? Uh, local honey, 10-mile radius works. Unfortunately, I haven't had any local honey. I kind of ran out of it. COVID and everything didn't get to it. I guess the bees were... Um, doing safer at home or something. And uh, so I was, uh, I was out of the, um, the honey. And uh, so um, when this unbelievable allergy season hit, I had to resort back to the, the antihistamines. And I'm afraid I overdid it. Plus, I did not properly hydrate this morning. And that's happened to me one other time. Now, I have to confess to you, when it happened this morning, I was thinking that, well, I've started off the sermon that you and I have two appointments. It's appointed unto, one, uh, unto man once to die and then the judgment. I said, well, I may be uh, coming up on one of those appointments right here. Uh, as I got kind of um, um, blacking out there a little bit and, and uh, things that were happening. And so um, I got to saying that. And then I thought, well, praise the Lord. Uh, B.C. Jesus. And I've always asked the Lord that if I... When I die, I'd like to go right straight from the pulpit, right to heaven. And uh, my wife knows that, so she was out there praying against me uh, today while I, I thought maybe that was going to be my opportunity. But I do want to know, I want you to know that a number of our doctors at Briarwood, Briarwood's one of the most wonderful place in the world to get a heart attack or to, um, you know, something to happen to you. Uh, it's safer than hospitals uh, here at Briarwood. And uh, so I've seen that proven out. So afterwards, a number of doctors came to me and I was reminded, Cindy and I were talking about, that this did happen to me one other time about five or six years ago. And, um, and, and that time I had to actually leave the pulpit and go back to my office. And um, and then um, a very similar situation, but I am uh, learning to hydrate. And uh, and then um, but uh, and when I got there, sure enough, doctors came. Um, uh, two doctors came. They were just right there. Uh, one of them uh, was my dermatologist, <laughs> and the other one was my wife's uh, my wife's gynecologist. Uh, they were very helpful. (laughs) 
and uh, and very considerate. So, but today I got a couple of general practitioners and emergency room guys, and I thank all you guys, all that you do, and we have wonderful men and women who serve our medical field. It was good to see Bobby up here and to see that ministry and all that that's accomplishing in the medical community here in um, Birmingham. So if you will, go with me to Acts chapter 20, and I want you to look with me, first of all, in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So where he is, he's in a little port city. I've been in this port city five times in my life. Uh, It is the port city of Miletus that actually um, has developed over the years because of the silt that comes out of the river that the Ephesus actually used to be the port city, but it's not anymore because the silt has built up from Ephesus down about five miles. And so now now the, um, the port city is five miles further and it's Miletus. So he is there. And he sends back word to the elders at Miletus, to, I mean at Ephesus, to meet him at Miletus. He has a word for them and a, um, a ministry of the word for them. And this is what he says in verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you. That's why I do not believe in multi-site Pastoring. I do not believe that someone in one place with a pastoral responsibility, you can just beam him into another place. I believe elders are those who are among you, and certainly the pastor who is in charge of preaching is to be. Pastoral preaching is absolutely crucial. And so he says, I was with you. I was among you. He was their pastor. And he was there for a long time, for three years in terms of, of Paul's ministries. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, which you can go back in Acts and see some of those things that happened. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, the pulpit ministry with the word of God is to teach the whole counsel of God with the gospel of God at the center, the circumference, and at the substance of it. As the gospel becomes the contours of teaching the whole counsel of God. Now do you see how that matches up with the Great Commission? Make disciples, baptizing them, and doing what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You don't just selectively disciple people. You put the first things first, but you build out because all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. So he had brought to them the whole counsel of God and noticed the two venues. This is something very important for us at Briarwood. We have attempted to maintain this. There was the large group where they would gather for worship, and then 
house to house. That there were small groups in which they were broken into small groups. Our, maybe we can call them our covenant groups or our small groups for Bibles, for fellowship that flow out of our Sunday school communities. And so you have the dynamic of the large group and the small group at work within the church. And then as he does this, he says to them, uh, testifying both. Oh, by the way, let me stop right there again. If you'll go back to Acts 2, you'll find the same thing. They gathered with one mind in the temple. There's the large group. And then it says they were house to house. Well, you don't get 3,000 people in a house. So they must have had small group discipleship. And by the way, maybe Paul and the apostles learned that from Jesus, who would gather the multitudes, and then he would have the 70 and the 12 and the 3. So that's, we're not ingenious here at Briarwood. We're just trying to follow that. So follow that pattern of the large group on the Lord's Day morning and evening, and then small groups that uh, meet uh, throughout the week and in the Sunday school communities so we can bring more dialogue and focus in discipleship because discipleship is both informational and relational. And that's why Paul is emphasizing this. He also tells you that this was not, he wasn't just a, a, um, a professional. He wasn't someone that he says, no, I did this with tears. Uh, This was, uh, as one writer said, one preacher said, he ministered with tropical eyes as he called upon the Lord for the well-being of his people and to reach the lost in Ephesus. And then after he says this, he says, I was teaching you public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God that brought him there is now leading him to Jerusalem. Now you can put that into the flow of Paul's life. He'll go to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested, then he'll be for a couple of years in prison at Caesarea by the sea, and then he will appeal to um, to Caesar and go for his first Roman imprisonment, where he will see the people who 12 years earlier he wrote the letter Romans to. So maybe tie a few things together for you there. And so then as he does this, he says that when, he says, when I was with you, I testified both to Jews and Greeks. Why? Because the gospel is for the Jew and the Greek. Both are in need of it. They're under the judgment of God and need the saving grace of God. And, and then what does he, what does he proclaim to them in this gospel? That they are to what he says, both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He called them to faith. Faith and repentance. Can I stop there with you? Faith and repentance are the Siamese twins of the work of the Spirit to bring you to salvation in Christ. You are saved by faith in Christ, but faith has an inevitable accompaniment. It's repentance. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means a radical change, a change, a radical change of mind, a radical change of heart. So we repent of our sins when we come to Christ and we turn to Christ. Now that's very important. Biblical repentance is not only, is not just sorrow over the consequences of our sin. It is sorrow over the sinfulness of sin. And it is turning, confessing that sin, turning from that sin, and you turn from that sin not simply to do better. You turn from that sin to Christ, 
who forgives and renews and transforms. And therefore, you have demonstrated that you've put your trust in Christ, that your faith is in Christ. You can't have saving faith without godly repentance. And the purpose of godly repentance is to demonstrate saving faith in Christ. That's why we say there are two sides of one coin. They're like the Siamese twins that are joined together. If you've got godly repentance, then you've got saving faith. If you've got saving faith, you've got godly repentance. And so when he went to that city, he preached the whole counsel of God to the Jews and the Gentiles. And as he came to that city, he laid for three years and he taught and preached the whole counsel of God in large groups. We see him in the theater out of which comes a riot. And, and in also he, and also in, um, and also in small groups. In fact, there will come a great riot because as people, now this is, I'm doing this for a reason, folks, now hang with me. As people are converted there, we are told that they begin to give up idolatry. Ephesus was a culture center of idolatry, most notably Artemis and Diana. And so when people started getting saved, guess what they quit doing? Idolatry. Guess what they started doing? Latria, instead of idolatria, it's latria. Instead of false gods being worshipped, it's the one true and living God that was being worshipped. Well, what happens to the, what happens to the economy and the, and the social fabric and the society when that happens? It gets turned upside down. It gets, I mean, all of a sudden, the greatest industries. Can I kind of give you an example? If we did evangelism and discipleship and we led people to Christ and trained them in the word of God, what would happen? Their life would change. What would happen if lives change? What would happen if Christian men began to fill their heart with the love of Christ as they grew in grace and there was no room for the insidious death and despair and fabrications of pornography, immorality, drunkenness. How many industries in America would turn upside down? How many of them? But notice what ruined the industry of idolatry built around Artemis so that silversmiths were out of job, merchants were out of jobs. Nobody's buying our idols. It was the work of the gospel in the hearts of the men and women. Paul did not come in and start an organization to remove uh, statues of Diana and Artemis. He came in with the gospel and the hearts of men changed. And instead of being deceived into idolatry, they now began to worship the one true and living God. And a casualty was the idolatry industry. And the, and whenever that happens, you can rest assured the evil empire will strike back. And so they did with riots, even to the point of attempting to kill Paul. That's what's the story behind all this. Now look at what else he says. He says this. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. 
Now, he may not know what's going to happen to them there, but he knows what he's going to do there. Do you know what he's going to do there? He's going to evangelize and make disciples. We know what he's going to do. He, he doesn't know what, what's going to happen to him when he gets there, but he does know what he's going to do. He's got a mission, he's got a message, and he's got a ministry. He knows what he is going to do. And then he says, and now behold, I'm going to and accept that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await for me. He just laid out for you. Now, please get this. He just laid out for you his understanding of what will happen when he goes to the city on mission, on message and in ministry. There's going to be affliction and persecution awaited for him. Not a parade, not a welcome mat. Not a, oh, Paul, thank you for bringing your nonprofit here. That's not what he's going to get. And he doesn't go there for that. He goes there to bring the gospel and the whole counsel of God to evangelize and disciple sinners to be brought to Christ. That's what he does in every city. There are approximately 28 we have recorded that he goes to. And he picks the tough ones. He picks the difficult ones. And he's not, and he comes eager and unashamed to preach the gospel. And so as he comes, he says, I do not give a, he says, um, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions away from me, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Well, if we didn't get it yet, let's get it here. What does he say he's committed to doing? Being on mission. To be on mission, that enables him to be on message. What is his mission evangelism and discipleship fulfill the great commission as he lives the great commandment and as he comes into the city to fulfill the mission he's got one message and that one message is Jesus saves sinners and when he saves them forensically that is makes them right legally before God by the blood and righteousness of Jesus he saves them experientially and transformationally because they're also regenerated as well as justified they're also, they're also being sanctified as well as adopted. There is the declarative work of the gospel and there's the transforming work of the gospel. And that means a changed life and that means everything else starts changing around those lives. And so he says, that's what I am committed to doing. I will do that until I die. That's my irrevocable Christ-given mission and message. And as he gives it and as he declares it, he says, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, you see his mission, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day. I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now you, speaking to these elders, you pay close attention to yourself. You pay close attention to yourself as overseers. You may, you, as you pay attention to yourself, you also pay close attention to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood.
For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, this isn't just somebody coming up with a rival church nearby. This is coming into the leadership of the elders, the collected elders, the presbyteron, uh, the session of elders within the church at Ephesus. Among your own selves, there will be fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He says very clearly, two times among you will come wolves. And they will be marked out by two things. False teaching, off message. And false leadership, off mission. They're not there to draw people to Christ, but to themselves. And they will twist the scriptures to accomplish that mission. And so he warns them of that. And from, and then he says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember that the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So as he came with this gospel word ministry, it was manifested with gospel deeds ministry from the mission and the message as one of the ministries, and he himself was a model for it. Well, let me let me just stop there to remind you that where we were last week uh, when we started into this, this assignment from the elders that we take a look at historic biblical Christianity and contemporary progressive Christianity. And I said to you, it is my conviction um, that this is another gospel. It is not the gospel of saving grace. It is another gospel. In fact, I shared with you another conviction that I believe it is the same errors with the same framework as the errors that had to be confronted at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, which was the movement of Christian liberalism. That Christian liberalism uh, made its appearance uh, in terms of what was happening in the culture. And as it made its appearance, Christian liberalism, uh, its motivation, its stated motivation was we are going to save the church from being cast away to the, to the trash bin of history. We are going to save the church from cultural irrelevance. We're going to make the church relevant. Why? Because we have a mission. Our mission is the transformation of the culture. Even magazines were written uh, for it at that time, Christian Century, that this was going to be the century of Christianity transforming the culture. 
And so now the mission became cultural transformation. Well, pastor, didn't you just say that the culture got transformed in Ephesus after Paul was there in ministry for three years? I certainly did. But I also tried to make it clear to you, he did not come to Ephesus to transform the culture. He came to Ephesus with the gospel message that transformed sinners and cultural transformation was the blessed effect not the mission. And what happens if you get the wrong mission, even if it's a good mission? For instance, do we want the church of Christ to grow? Absolutely. But that's a, that's a, that's a consequence. That's not the mission. That's a consequence. Statistical increase is the consequence of the mission. It's not the mission. And if statistical increase becomes the mission... It's just a matter of time that the gospel of grace will be replaced by the gospel, uh, by the pragmatic gospel of entertainment. How do I get the people in? How can I give them what they want? And therefore, the gospel gets, uh, gets adulterated and eventually apostasy. The same thing happens when we think, I want to have a church where everybody comes and they get successful in this world. The things that are passing away. Well, that's success in life mission. Now, do I believe that some Christians actually, by God's grace, when they become Christians, God decides I'm going to bless what you do? Yes. Do I know some Christians, when they decide they're going to be faithful to Christ, they end up costing them what they have? Yes. You see, our the resources we have in life is not our objective. The resources we have in life is what God gives us to achieve the objective. What is our objective? To make disciples, not to be successful in the terms and the measurements and the metrics of this world. And if you do, it's just a matter of time till the message is adulterated and it becomes a prosperity gospel. If we decide that the whole issue is, you know, people, they're isolated, they're set apart, there's all the, and people, they just don't have the right view of themselves, and they just need self-esteem, and it's just a matter of time till you come up with a therapeutic gospel. Now, do I believe the gospel gets you right with God and gives you a right view of yourself before God? Absolutely. But that's a consequence. You've got to be right with God to understand what it means to live right before God and how to see yourself before God. God. So uh, again, we could continue on, but what Christian liberalism said is our motivation is to save the church from cultural irrelevance in order that the church could fulfill its mission of cultural transformation. And what happened to the message? To be relevant, they listened to the culture. To be at the seat of the table with the culture shapers, They listened to the culture and the message no longer was determined by the word of God. Sola Scriptura, the scripture alone is our rule of faith and practice. The message was one of cultural accommodation. You know, the modern mind isn't going to believe these supernatural things, virgin birth, resurrection, and it's going to remove those things. So, so then came theological apostasy because the mission controlled the message. Please remember that. M- motivation, mission, 
and methods will ultimately determine the message. That's something we have to remember. Well, my proposition, it's in one of those sermons that Bobby was referring about that I preached here. My proposition, I did a deep dive on this thing for about the last year. And the more I went in, the more relevant I saw what J. Gresham Machen said in Christianity and Liberalism. The more I dove in, the more I began to appreciate so many things were, that were being written and understanding that prosperity, or, I'm sorry, the progressive Christianity is basically Christian liberalism 2.0. So I began to recommend Christianity and liberalism. Well, immediately I got pushback. And the pushback was, hey, pastor, now listen very carefully to the progressive Christians. The progressive Christians are not telling us to remove the virgin birth. The progressive Christians are not arguing against the inerrancy of Scripture. Progressive Christians are not pushing back on the doctrine of the Trinity. They're, they're, it's, it's not the same thing. And I said, I didn't say it this way. I wished I could have said it this way. Oh, contraire. Uh, I, I would uh, say that you're wrong on that. Just listen a little bit closer. They're not... They're not coming to take out the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the body, the virgin birth, the inerrancy of Scripture. They're not doing that. And the only reason they're not doing it is the culture isn't demanding it. When the culture demands it, they'll do it. Well, Harry, why do you believe that? Because I believe believe that progressive Christianity is has the same motivation. Please listen to what they say. We're going to rescue the church from irrelevance. If you don't change, you'll lose your young people. If you don't change, you have their motivation. Now, notice they're not coming like the Christian liberalism. They're not coming to destroy the church. The motivation is save the church. Not by being faithful to the mission and the message, but editing the mission and the message. And when that mission gets edited, even if it's a possibly good thing that would come as a blessing if we were on mission. Once that mission gets edited, it will edit the truth. It will first adulterate it, our, our message, and then it will apostatize, cause it to apostatize. And so that's what's happening. And that, and he listened to our men. No, yeah, not the virgin birth, not the resurrection. What? Sexual ethics. How in the world are you going to reach young people if you keep back with this? Sex is a gift from God within a marriage defined by one man and one woman for one life. You're on the wrong side of history. That's what you are. Notice how many sermons will be preached in progressive churches on the issues, and many, and they should be preached, by the way. I, and I praise God when they're rightly preached. But they only preach on the ones that the culture applauds, strangely silent on the sanctity of life, strangely silent on the sanctity of marriage. Strangely silent on the sanctity of gender. Strangely silent. See, I would suggest to you, if you'll look a little bit closer, while we haven't 
we haven't accommodated the culture in our message on the supernatural doctrines as the Christ, as liberal Christianity did, liberal theology did, when it vacuumed those things out to be acceptable to the cultural elite. What we are vacuuming out is the things that are distasteful to the present culture of progressivism in society. And so... Either we reinterpret it. I just did another today in perspective on another historic Christian uh, uh, school that has now abandoned and now embraces the implementation of the LGBTQIA plus. And don't forget the plus. There's more to come. uh, Agenda. And they have accommodated it while saying, but by the way, we still hold to the biblical position. No, you don't. Your, I hope you heard this morning's sermon in spite of my inadequacies. Uh, practice, practice ultimately determines your true confession. It's what you do that reveals the integrity of what you say. And so what they have now said, oh yeah, we're going to hold to that, but here's how we're going to create charters for the LGBTQIA sexual agenda and and the resulting sexual anarchy. In other words, this culture that we have called progressivism in society has now said to the church, you want the free practice of religion? Then you need to conform. And if you don't, we'll shut you down. And we're about to find out in this season of sifting and shifting Who is on the Lord's side? We're just about to find out. And can I say something off script here? I am very deeply concerned about denominations that will not speak forth the truth of where we are confessionally, teaching the whole counsel of God. Because they believe if they make the deal with the culture... The culture will let us keep our IRS uh, deductions. The culture will let us keep our church freedoms on Sunday. And what I tell every single one of those pastors, you may think they're going to let you keep your freedom, but believe me, that will be short-lived. But here's the other problem. While you're protecting your organizational church, you just sacrificed all of the Christian businessmen and women in your church who have to go and do battle in the culture on these issues. And are they going to be faithful to Christ or are they going to bow? You just gave them up instead of calling for their protection as well. But what we can't do is not just make this a political issue. This is a deeply spiritual issue. And so the progressive secular culture has, remember the two beasts in the book of Revelation? The beast of the power of the state and the beast of the apostate church that serves as the handmaiden to the apostate state. I mean, to the tyrannical state, the apostate church. Well, now you're seeing it as progressive Christianity um, moves throughout the professing evangelical church in order to be accepted by the cultural elite of of the academy, of entertainment, of media, of the political world, the world of the bureaucrats, and also the, um, and also, um, 
and, and, and also, I think I mentioned this, the academy, as well as the, as well as the big business of our day that has found a way to make money on all of this. So I believe that progressive Christianity has the same motivation and it's wrong. It has the same mission, cultural transformation, and it's wrong. And it is going to end up having an adulterated apostate message, and that's wrong. That's why I do not believe that progressive Christianity is a subset of Christianity. I believe it is in opposition to biblical Christianity. Wrong motivation, wrong mission, wrong message, wrong ministries. Instead of the ministries and means that God has ordained, preaching, fellowship, worship, prayer. It, it reaches for everything else with all of the social and demographic and political tools of the state. Thus, you find progressive Christianity embracing, um, embracing instruments and tools that were written to destroy Christianity, such as critical theory and its subsets of critical race theory, critical law theory. And may I strongly encourage you to read two books, one is more popular, the other is more scholarly, but both are important. And one of them is uh, Vody Bachman's book, Fault Lines, and the other uh, scholarly work, but still very readable, is my friend Carl Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Both of them show you how, how we have adulterated the Bible by canonizing the books that come out of intersectionality, critical theory, critical race theory, those have been the things that our seminarians are, are reading instead of the biblical solution to the sins of the age. So, I, so you have to ask yourself, well, pastor, how does all of that get a foothold? Let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. The first thing that when you see this, you should not be amazed when, when we're fighting this battle. I've tried to say it time and time again, and I'm, I'm sure I, I, I don't state it clearly enough. But you're, as a Christian, you're always fighting a two-front war. The war outside of Satan and the world and temptation and the war inside of the old man that you have. And the way to win that war is to kill, to flee temptation and kill the old man. Well, the church has a two-front war. The two-front war is outside and inside. Do you remember when Jesus said, so this is a spiritual battle for us and it should not surprise us. Do you remember Jesus in Matthew 16 gives us a promise and at the same time a prophecy. He says this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Don't you love that promise? Jesus builds his church. I don't need the culture to maintain the effectiveness of Christianity. I just need Jesus, his word, his spirit, and the means of grace. I am more than happy to have a culture that welcomes that. But I do not need the applause of the parades of that culture. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell. Now, there will be individual denominations, just like the seven churches, there are five of them right there, that are going to fall away. But Christ's everlasting church will prevail. 
But if Christ's everlasting church will prevail against the onslaughts of the gates of hell, what does that tell you? There's a hidden prophecy in that. Not so hidden. I've made a promise. You will prevail. Why is that promise important? Because you're going to be assaulted. He is letting you know this is a battle. Spiritual warfare is not a momentary event in the life of a Christian or a church. It is our life. Now, spiritual warfare is conducted knowing Jesus has won the war. But we still got battles. The Bible says that Satan, after the ascension of Jesus in the book of Revelation, Satan went off to make war with the woman. That is the covenant bride of Christ. And so we are at war. Now, the second thing is, if Satan assaults and Jesus keeps us, how does Jesus keep us and how does Satan assault? Well, Jesus keeps us by the Spirit and with the Word through the means of grace, preaching, fellowship, worship, prayer, all of those means of grace that He has given and giving us the armor of Christ and the divine weapons of the Spirit that are fashioned to the destruction of, of the thought, of, uh, to tear down the, every speculation raised up against God. But what about Satan? Now, I've said it before. Please allow me to repeat it so we get it documented here. Satan attacks the church with, and, and through the church, the individual believer, with three strategies. Imitation, intimidation, and infiltration. Three strategies. Intimidation. He goes about like a roaring lion. Why does a lion roar? It freezes you with paralysis. Christians say no to fear. Yes to concerns, but no to fear and no to anxiety. Uh, and so we say, uh, we say, we say that recognizing valid concerns, thoughtfulness in life, but we don't have, we don't, we are not to be under dominion of fear. The only fear we embrace and rejoice in is the one that begins wisdom in our life, which is the fear of the Lord. In fact, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little, um, I'll give you a little um, uh, assignment. Quit saying awesome unless you're talking about the only one who ultimately is full of that which causes our awe. Well, what about my grandson? Well, just find another word. Almost awesome. But, but just stay focused, stay focused on what it means that this God is glorious. He is our God, big God, a lot more peace in your life. So we, our confidence is in the Lord, in the work of the spirit whom he has given to us, the armor of Christ. That's where our, he will be our strength. And therefore we will not fear, but most of all, the greatest, the greatest instrument to slay fear is to know and immerse yourself in the love of Christ. Perfect love cast out all fear. Secondly, be aware of not only his work to intimidate us into paralysis or silence or shame, shame uh, shaming silence, but secondly, be aware of his work of 
of imitation. Yes, he can create the tares. I believe that there are real Christians that are found in progressive Christian churches and real Christians that are getting uh, drug into progressive Christianity. I have no doubt about that. I have no doubt. I'm going to get my closing remark tonight, um, and um, which I'm not getting through everything again tonight, but I'm, I'm about to close. So take encouragement. It's not going to take a heart attack for me to close. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to get there. Uh, so, um, uh, so, um, what I wanted to, what I got off there, um, is imitation. Um, you're going to hear this again. Have y'all been reading of all of these quote unquote Christian celebrities that are deconstructing their evangelical faith? That's not accidental language. That's what progressivism does. New mission, wrong motivation, wrong mission, then comes not the invention of a faith, but a deconstruction of the evangelical faith. And go listen to what they're saying. Well, I just don't believe you have to believe everything in that Bible's true. I don't believe you, I don't believe all the answers to life are just found in the Bible. So now we're going to canonize some other works that you got to have for the Christian life. And uh, and you, what what you're seeing is the fact that progressive Christianity is like liberal Christianity. It not only produces an apostate theology, it apostatizes those who profess once to hold to theology by deconstructing their theology piece by piece. In other words, again. Progressive Christianity is like liberal Christianity. It is parasitic and it is terminal. It lives off of those things that are there. You don't see progressive churches planted. What you see are once evangelical churches succumb to insidious leadership produced in some seminaries to get people off mission, off ministry, and they sell it with terms and words, and they sell it with, we're going to save Christianity. And by the way, we're going to the city to make it a utopia. My friends, you're always going to have the poor. You're always going to be in a broken system. Do I want to bring truth through Christians that causes a culture to do away with the industries of sin for the flourishing of humanity? Absolutely. But I don't get that by becoming a community organizer. Oh, I may in my ministry produce some community organizers, but that's not my job. My job is to pastor a church, and what a church does is it goes into the community on mission, on message, and in ministry, and it turns out Christians that are salt and light in all of life. That's what, it, that's what we do. What does progressive Christianity does? It imitates by living off of evangelical Christians and uh, churches and destroying them and destroying evangelical previously professed evangelical Christians, their life and their ministry. You have no idea how much time I spend uh, responding to churches. What happened when we called this guy? 
I've even met with churches and ministries and told them, you can't interview the way you used to. When you interview, you got to realize they're using our vocabulary, but not our dictionary. You can't do it the same way. Imitation is at work. The wheat and the tares, now the tares are saying they're wheat. Thirdly and finally, infiltration. And that's where he ends up. Infiltration, right there, among yourselves. The Lord loves to infiltrate churches in the membership with grumbling, polarization, adopting the factions of the society, the political world, the cultural world. He loves to come in with with division. Here's what Paul says about division. There's only one time it's acceptable when those who are holding to the truth of the whole counsel of God that of necessity, that will divide. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you and you're acting like the world. This should not be. Have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. That you are to be humble in your boldness for truth. I hear that there are divisions and in part, in one case, I believe it. That those who are holding to the truth might be approved. Otherwise, say no to political division, say no to personality division, say no to celebrity division. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm this, I'm that. That ought not to be named among you. Now, there may come a time that the division is necessary when you hold to the truth of the doctrines of grace in the word of God. But otherwise, we do not let him get in and divide us with party spirit and a factious spirit. We learn to love one another well with the truth. I said it this week in a tweet. I'll say it here. If I'm going to present the truth of necessity, I have to attack error. But when I present the truth and attack error because it's against the truth, I have to do it in love. And I want to have clarity and charity when I do it. Finally, it's the infiltration of the pulpit. Right now, progressive Christianity is infiltrating the pulpits of previously evangelical churches by having already infiltrated the pulpits of many of our educational institutions, many of our seminaries. And we're turning out ministers who are not ministers of the gospel. They have bought in with the wrong motivation and the wrong mission, and now increasingly the wrong message. I'll give you one example, and I'll close in prayer. Pastor, don't you understand that people who battle sexual addiction sins, it's a besetting sin, it's deeply embedded. Don't you understand that? I do. I do understand that. I have ministered to those with the besetting sin of homosexuality. I've been, I've been there. I've done that. I am doing that right now. I am doing that. But let me tell you what I'm not doing. I am not telling them God made you that way because the Bible says it's unnatural. And I'm not telling them it's the same as a natural appetite gone awry. 
Both are sinful, but it's not the same. And let me tell you what else I'm not doing. I'm not telling them that this testimony of a sin nature came as a design sin nature to cause you to do this. This is what you're doing, working out that sin nature. And then I'm telling them the gospel. Two things about it. Jesus will take you right where you are. And if you will repent of your sins and put your trust in him, you can be forgiven, justified, and adopted. And there is now no condemnation. We don't have to resort to euphemisms. We can actually confess our sins and he wipes away our sin, our guilt, and our shame and gives us his righteousness. But I want to tell you something else about the gospel. You'll be born again. I want to tell you something else by the gospel. You can grow in grace, and grace is greater than sin. I don't know whether this sin gets eradicated tomorrow, the next day, or you fight it till you go home. But I tell you, the power of the gospel can so declare, such were some of you. I am not going to give you a gospel that says you get the benefits of declaring you without guilt but you don't have to kill the desire, just manage it. No, we kill it. We kill it by cutting it off, and we kill it by pushing it out. And we love each other through that process. That's what we do. So what we have, but what we have is being told now that if you preach that gospel, you don't have compassion, you're unfeeling. If you tell people that they can have victory over the desire and the practice. Folks, if I didn't believe that the gospel could forgive and transform. Now, again, I'm not saying immediately. I'm not, I'm, I got sins I'm dealing with in my life for 50 years. And praise God for the progress. And praise God that we can move forward. I've got some that he just took out of my life. Praise God for that. But I've been called to kill it and pursue him. And if you decide the culture has to approve the gospel you preach, you'll keep the blessings of declarations of justification and adoption, but you'll remove the promises of regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration breaks the power of sin. I have sin living in me, but I do not have to live in sin anymore. And the blessings of sanctification, we can grow not for grace, but in grace. And our God is persistent. When you fall down, he picks up and praise his name forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we could be in your word. Uh, thank you, Father, for the privilege to have been in this word tonight uh, together. And would you please keep us faithful, focused, open, encouraging. Where we see wolves in sheep's clothing, identify it. Where we see sheep who are being drawn into wolves' clothing, uh, then, Father, help us reach out so that they would be unstained by the evil garments. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, folks, I feel like I'm just getting so discombobulated on this. And so can I just say two things in closing? Um, 
please, um, I want to address to you from what I just read tonight, next Sunday, what I didn't get to tonight, which is what does it mean to seek the welfare of the city and learn from Paul at Ephesus? The second thing I want to do is I want us to understand that while we have to be aware of these things, you don't win these battles on defense, you win them on offense. And I want to try to get that to you as well in the coming weeks. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.